You're listening to Alive and Powerful with Pastor Scott Morrison. Alive and Powerful is the radio ministry of Foothills Calvary, a fresh and growing fellowship in Lakewood, Colorado. We invite you to come and join us as we study the Word together, Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m. We meet at 12344 West Alameda Parkway in Lakewood, just a few blocks west of Union and Alameda. For more information about Foothills Calvary, please visit our website at foothillscalvary.org. That's foothillscalvary.org. We hope you are blessed by today's message. Now, here's Pastor Scott. Amen. Well, it's time to get in the Word, and today's message is a little heavy. Uh, how, how many of you know God, God's Word is not always happy, happy, joy, joy? <clears throat> we would like it to be. So I think when we're done with the book of Revelation, we're not going to the book of Job. Um, maybe Philippians, something about love, I don't know. Um, but today's a little heavy, but we want to pray uh, over it and, and pray that God speaks to us. So those four prayer points, one, pray that God speaks to you. He knows where you're at. He knows what you need. And there's something for you in this message, in his word this morning. So pray for that. Pray for the person sitting next to you, in front of you, behind you. Pray for those uh, online, that God would speak to them as well. And pray for those that don't know Christ, that don't have a relationship, um, that God would draw them into that relationship with himself and uh, they could have eternity in heaven with us as well. And then pray for me, that I'm obedient to what God has given me to say this morning and, and that he brings direction and correction in my life. I need it just as much, if not more, than anybody else. And so let's, let's take it to the Lord and let's pray over the morning. Father God, we thank you for the freedom we have to be here, first of all, and the freedom we have in Christ. And that you love us and that you want us to hear from you, that you give us your word. And so this morning, Lord, we're asking that you speak to us individually. You know where each and every person in this room is, mentally, physically, spiritually, and emotionally, Father. And I pray, Lord, that you would meet us at that point of need, that you would speak to us corporately as a church, that you would empower us and help us to engage in our faith. And God, speak to those who don't know you, God, draw them into a relationship with you, whether they're hearing this message now or they hear it later um, on the website or the podcast. God, that you would truly draw them into a relationship with you, that you would restore them. And God, I do pray that you would speak to me, that you would bring direction and correction in my life and that I'm obedient to what it is you've put on my heart this morning. And Lord, that everything we do glorifies you and honors you. So may it be your word that is heard in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So today we're going to be in Revelation chapter 6, and uh, it's simply titled, Unsealing the Great Tribulation. Pretty easy. Um, remember, blessed is he who reads and hears these prophetic words and applies these words to their lives. It's a remembrance for us on a daily basis as we're in God's word that, that as we study his word, it truly does bring blessing to us. It brings direction, it brings correction. God's word is powerful and effective. And so we know as we read this book, especially that there's a, a promise of a blessing to us. Last week we shifted from worship in the throne room and he who was on the throne to what was held in God's hand, that, that scroll, and who then is worthy to open that scroll and no created being, no man, no creature, was worthy. 
who is indeed worthy to hold eternal life and everlasting condemnation in his hands. The fifth chapter of Revelation revealed that no other leader, religious figure, or ruler in history could open this important scroll about God's righteous judgment. And and Christians and people as a whole don't like to talk about judgment, do we? We don't like the judgment aspect, and that's something we get pushed back from as well. Only one person, the risen Savior who sacrificed himself for all mankind, could open the scroll. It was Jesus. It is Jesus, the unique and superior Savior to all. It is only he who is worthy to open the scroll. Revelation 6, the the first six seals, and of those, the first four seals bring the four horsemen. Let's start with verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6 of Revelation. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice of thunder, Come, and I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Here we go. This is where people panic a bit. We, we study the book of Revelation on our own, and we're pretty good up through the churches, maybe a little bit after that. But then when we get into the seals being broken and the trumpets and the bowls, and then we all kind of like panic a little bit. But we've got to keep the, uh, the whole counsel of God's word in front of us as we study. We have to be like a Berean on a continuous basis, asking God to to speak to us through his word, asking the Holy Spirit to help us understand and apply his word and to not be fearful or, or confused by what God's word says, that we can truly apply it, that we can be discerning in these tumultuous times that we live in and not get caught up in false prophecies and conspiracy theories and things that all get kind of tied in with the book of Revelation. It is with the opening of the first seal and the tribulation period begins. A seven-year span after the rapture or the taking away of the church. It's when God will bring judgment on the earth and reclaim it. And once we, the body of Christ, that is the church, once we are in heaven worshiping around God's throne, then divine judgment in the form of great calamities will be unleashed on the earth. The white horse brings a man of conquest. For the previous chapter, we understood that the scroll is history and destiny of mankind and creation, and only Jesus, the lamb, had the right to loosen the seals on the scroll of the culmination of history. If the scroll details the culmination of history, then the things associated with the removal of the seals must happen before that scroll is even opened. You have to listen. This is, this is not the fulfillment of history itself. Uh, the, the, the seals being broken are a preparation for it. We'll see the culmination of this when we get to Revelation 19, hopefully in a few months. Clark says, it is worthy of remark that the opening of the seals is not merely a declaration of what God will do, but is an expedition, exhibition of a purpose then accomplished. For whenever the seal is opened, the sentence appears to be executed. He heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice of thunder, Come. 
You see, each seal is associated with a living creature. These are real creatures, not a symbol, not a figurative being. These living creatures are a special, highly exhorted and powerful being, an angelic being, possibly a form of a cherubim. Same as what's found in Ezekiel chapters 1 and 10. They have a great voice of thunder and call out, come. Or it could be translated, go forth. Behold, a white horse. At first glance, it seems to be Jesus. However, Jesus does not return on a white horse until Revelation 19.11. But this rider, this white horse, this is actually a satanic dictator who imitates Jesus. The rider on a white horse is a geopolitical leader. He is referenced elsewhere as the Antichrist who will insert himself in the world following the rapture and bring order out of chaos. 1 John 2.18, children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. You see, this, this person will rule. A crown was given. He rules with a bow, not a sword. He exercises dominion over the earth. He went out conquering and to conquer. There's also no arrow mentioned with the bow, meaning that he will assume power just through strength, through recognition and substance without resorting to violence initially. There's ultimate deception we see some of that deception happening even now in our world. We see how many people are deceived at this time in history. It's going to be much worse. Ultimate deception. The ensuing sense of peace throughout the world will prove to be false. The results of his rule as described in the following verses show clearly that this is not the reign of Jesus. Jennings points out the whole context and character of these seals obviously forbid our thinking of the writer being the Lord Jesus, as so many affirm. Jesus' reign shall not bring war, famine, and strife in its train. So it is imperative for us today in the freedom we have to study and to be engaged in studying God's word, that we don't take scripture out of context, that we don't add into it something that, that is not there, our own meanings and our own thoughts. We look at God's word as a whole and the meaning that he gives us. How people interpret this first writer will tell you a lot about how they understand this book and God's prophetic plan. Those who think that this is a, a book of history believe that the writer is Jesus and the apostles or even Roman emperors. Those who see this as prophetic, which I do, see this writer as the Antichrist. He went out conquering and to conquer. Holding to this being the final satanic dictator over men. We see that he's going to be even more terrible than all previous dictators. He'll indeed rule over men as a false messiah, the Antichrist. He'll be actively leading mankind in and orchestrating rebellion against God in the same pattern that Nimrod did in the Bible in Genesis 10. You remember Nimrod, Noah's grandson, who's the builder of the city of Nineveh, also the Tower of Babel. 
It's where he believed that he could actually build it high enough to reach paradise, to reach heaven. This has a sense that he was a mighty hunter of men, and that in itself was an offense to the face of God. It's here that we have to remember on a daily basis that Satan hates us. Satan hates men and women. He hates God's creation. He hates individuals. He hates children. He hates families. He wants to dictate and rule over us. And short of dictating and ruling over us, he wants to destroy us completely. He is active. He is actively working to destroy our testimonies and our lives. He hates God. He hates God's creation. It's interesting uh, John had asked me in between services, he's like, does Satan hate himself because God created him too? Interesting thought. But hate-driven is the main point. Hating anything of God. We see the culmination of all this in the tribulation. It says, come and see. Today, our modern political and social scene is certainly set for the emergence of such a political leader Look how easily global control was seized because of a virus. Everything was controlled. Think about the worldwide communication that, ha that we have today and that has happened. Think about all the fear that was spread because of that communication. Think about all the control that was easily taken over all men and women. All that waits now is for the Lord to allow it in his timing after he takes the church from the earth. 2 Thessalonians 2, 6, and 7, And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. So the mystery of lawlessness is Satan's program of sin. The one now restraining is the Holy Spirit working in and through the church. The Holy Spirit is like a dam that is set up. It's holding back the full expression of the evil until God removes his church out of the world in the rapture. It's the Holy Spirit working through the church. It's the Holy Spirit working through you and I, individual Christians, that affects the expansion or limitation of sin in our lives, our families, and our society as a whole. It is significant that the opening of the first seal brings uh, the dictator up to prominence, lifts him up. It connects with Daniel 9, when the dictator will confirm a covenant with the Jewish people. And further study on your own, you can also look at the connection with the four horsemen in the 70th week of Daniel and the great tribulation itself. All right, so that's the white horse. And now we move to the red horse, bringing war and conflict. Verses three and four. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come, and another, and a red horse went out, and to him who sat on it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. That red horse, it went out. Him who was sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth. This rider did not need to bring war and destruction. He didn't have to go out of there ready just to, to destroy himself. All he needed to do was take peace from the earth. Once peace is removed, which is God's gift to man, once it's taken away, men will quickly rush into war and destruction. 
I don't think we really understand that peace between men among nations is truly a gift from God. It's not the natural state of relations between men. Authority was granted to the horsemen. This could be directly or indirectly the judgment of God. The world as we know it is marked with conflict by wars. There's been more than 250 wars since 1900. Even today, wars are being fought. If we think about just World War I and World War II, 60 million plus people died just in those two wars. Most of them in World War II. At any point in time, every day, there are dozens of armed conflicts occurring and there's lives being lost, even right now as we're in this room. Nations of our modern world often spend more than a trillion dollars on military expenditures every year. So it's imperative for us in our daily lives, in our personal lives, it's imperative for us that we seek peace on a continuous basis. Making sure that the decisions that we make help bolster peace and and bring hope to those that we are in contact with. We have a, a peace and a hope that we can share with the entire world that is in much, much turmoil, in much disarray. So peace removed, war instilled. Then we have the black horse following, bringing scarcity and inequity Verses five and six, when he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked and behold a black horse and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius. Do not damage the oil and the wine. The scales symbolize the need to carefully measure and ration food. It speaks of a time of scarcity. These prices are about 12 times higher than normal. You think inflation's bad now. 12 times higher than normal. It means that it would cost a day's wage to buy ingredients for a loaf of bread. Not to buy a loaf of bread, to buy what you need to make a loaf of bread. Wolverd says that this describes a time of famine when life will be reduced to the barest necessities. We have so much, don't we? How many of you have food at home? Some of you might have food in the car. Have we got any snacks? How about the office drawer at work? Get a little snack drawer? We all have access to food, don't we? We have so much excess. How much food is thrown out of restaurants? Anybody ever been in the restaurant business? See how much food goes into our trash can at the end of the day? We have so much excess. Today we watch on TV, we have commercials of those who are food deprived. Death famine is definitely still on our planet. Not enough food, not enough clean drinking water for that matter. But today people have more access to food and water than they did 100 years ago. There's more access to it. Remember, Jesus said, the poor will always be among you. We're always going to have those who are in need. We have access to more than than we've ever had. But honestly, here in America, we have this thing called obesity. It's considered an epidemic. It's directly linked to the top 10 causes of death. Well, that's not because we're in the middle of a famine, is it? 
because we have excess. So do we really understand famine? You see, we had uh, COVID, and then we have the war in Ukraine. We have other things that are happening, things that cause shortages or lags in food getting supplies to their destination. When we understand the world's precarious ecological balance, it would not take much to plunge many into that kind of scarcity and inequity that the Bible mentions. We think about it in our own city. Fear drives people to empty the shelves, right? We had a pandemic. People were fearful. What happened? All the toilet paper left for some reason. Food, they emptied the shelves in our own city. King Supers down the street, Snowmageddon last year. Emptied the shelves. How quickly things can turn because of fear and panic. In that, then he says, do not damage the oil and the wine. Even though famine will be rampant, nicer things are available for those who maybe still could afford them. There'll still be the oil and the wine that should not be harmed. And then we have the pale horse that brings death. Verse 7 through 8. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come. I looked and behold an ashen or pale horse and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and famine and pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. An ashen or pale horse, he who sat on it was named Death, and Hades followed. That's kind of a grim picture. Ashen, it's a green, yellowish, or pale and colored horse. This last writer shows that there'll be a tremendous death toll from the dictatorship, from war, from famine, and other calamities described by the previous three horsemen. Now, I love studying history. That's one of the things I've always loved back even as a kid. I love to see history. I love to see world history. I love to study biblical history. And as you study it, though, you're going to see some, some great things, some amazing accomplishments, some amazing inventions. But you'll also see millions of people that have been killed by dictators and war and famine. However, this will pale in comparison to the death toll coming. The death toll coming in the wake of this ultimate dictator. It's no wonder that Jesus said in Matthew 24, 21, for then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Death. In the wildest sense, death, comprising of all the miseries arising from sin. Remember, sin came into the Garden of Eden and that's what brought death and disease, and destruction that we know. Well, this will come in the form of physical death, the loss of life consecrated to God and blessed in him on the earth to be followed by a wretchedness and eternity in hell. This is a message that is not received well by the world, is it? Like you have that conversation with somebody. Then we have hell, Hades followed him, the grave followed him, and authority was given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill if you're under the impression that Satan is ruling this planet, this is yet another reminder that it is God who is in control. Authority from God was given to them to bring this judgment. Authority, 
power. Power was given to the horsemen, power given by God. And although all hell breaks loose on earth, literally, God is very much in control. He still holds the scroll. Jesus opens the seals. God is in control. Tony Evans said that with its pale green horse and rider named Death brings an astonishingly severe judgment in the aftermath of social conflict. A fourth of the earth's population will die from a combination of violence, famine, plague, and attacks by wild animals. If this occurred today, the fourth seal would bring the demise of almost two billion people. Two billion people. It's a great reminder, especially for us now, God is in control. We don't have to fear this. We don't have to worry. We may be struggling with some things, but, but it's nothing like what is coming. And we have to remember the book of Revelation. We have hope in Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ. We have hope. Hi, this is Pastor Scott from Foothills Calvary. I hope the Lord is speaking to you through today's message. I wanted to just take a second and invite you to join us for worship services at Foothills Calvary. We meet Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m. at 12344 West Alameda Parkway in Lakewood, just a few blocks west of Union and Alameda. If you'd like more information on Foothills Calvary, please visit our website at foothillscalvary.org. Now let's get back to our study. I pray that the Lord will continue to speak to you by his Holy Spirit. So the question is, are you doing the work now while you have the time and freedom to do so? You see, we may not be here for the tribulation, but many people that we have access to right now will be. God forbid that they would suffer and spend eternity in hell because we didn't speak up. May it not be because we did not reach out to them with the message of hope that God has given each one of us. That's hard for us. Now, I talked a little bit earlier about people being deceived. People right now in this world are deceived greatly. And you know, if you've shared your faith with somebody and you hear the stories they say or you hear the rebuttal from them, they just don't know, they don't understand, they don't get it. There's a deception there that's already started but we're to be obedient in doing everything we can that, that when God brings somebody across our path, we reach out, we try to give them some hope, we try to guide them and direct them. But you know what? Not every person you're gonna talk to is gonna receive it. They're not gonna hear you. But be obedient, be prepared, and be ready to share your faith and do it with gentleness and compassion. The fifth seal brings forth the cry of the martyrs, verses nine through 11. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and brethren who were to be killed even as they had been would be completed also. 
saw under the altar the souls that had been slain because of the word of God. These souls were under the altar. It emphasizes that their, their literal lifeblood was poured out as an offering before God. The idea is drawn from Leviticus 4, 7. And he shall pour the remaining blood at the base of the altar of the burnt offering who had been slain because of the word of God. It's probably best to see this as a cry of all the martyrs for God's truth, not just believers persecuted in the coming world leader, that first horseman of Revelation 6. They cried with a loud voice. These souls in heaven cried out for vengeance. How long will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood? Now, we don't usually think as Christians, we don't, maybe you don't, maybe you have prayed this prayer, but we don't usually cry out for God's vengeance on people who have wronged us. But here they made their cry to God directly, and then they let it go. So it brings to a question of what is prayer? Conversation with God. Well, what are we going to do tonight at 6 o'clock? I encourage you guys to be here at 6 o'clock. Just sacrifice a little bit of time. Come hang out. Come sing some songs. Come pray with and for each other. We take that conversation to God. We talk to him. We have direct communication. These saints are praying, even though they're in heaven. We don't think about that. We're on earth right now. We think about praying. That's how we talk to God. You're still going to pray when you get to heaven. You're still going to have conversation with God. They know the pain and suffering that they went through as martyrs. They know what others are going to go through as well. They want to know when God is going to make it right. When is God going to correct this? In our prayer time, can we pray and simply leave the request in faith in his hands? A lot of times we do the same thing. We pray, say this great prayer, we're talking to God, we give him this thing, well, Lord, will you meet this point of need? And then all of a sudden we take it back and put it in our pocket. No, we, we need to pray and trust that God is going to take that request. And then we come back later and we bring the request again. And again, it, we can keep going to God and talking to him about it. We take those requests to him. When God's people are persecuted, God will indeed set things right. It isn't wrong for God's people to ask him to do what he had promised to do. We talk to him about his promises. We talk to him about his word. The big idea, though, is that we talk to him. Yeah, God knows what you're going to pray, but he wants to hear you in faith say it. He wants you to express it. That emotion, that feeling, that thought, that need, he wants to hear you express it. The blood of Abel cried out from the ground and for vengeance in Genesis, the blood of the unavenged murders in the land of Israel in Numbers 35. All these martyrs are there. They're crying out to God. But they were told that they should rest for a little while longer. These saints were instructed to wait. How long must they wait? Remember, God will answer your prayers, but it may not be the answer that you think it is. And he may tell you to wait a minute. Yeah, but God, I, wait, be still and know that I am God. Rest for a minute, relax and refresh for a minute, and wait for the Lord. Wait until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were killed, even as they had been, would also be completed. 
means that they should wait until God's appointed martyrs are killed or, or because the words the number of are supplied by the translators, not the text. It may mean that they wait until the character of the remaining martyrs on earth is perfected and complete. It is character, the way that one lives that makes a martyr, not the way one dies. You see, we've said this before, you say that you will die for Jesus. I would tend to guess that most of us in this room are not going to actually have to die for Jesus because of our faith. We're not there yet. May come a day, sooner than we think, but you will die for Jesus. That's great. But the bigger question that I've asked before is, will you live for him? Will you live like you truly believe in him? Another question couple questions. How many of you even have a conversation with God about what's going on in your life? Or you just kind of keep plowing on through? Conversations, good or bad. In that, how many of you truly wait for the answer? And then when you get that answer, what do you do with it if it's not the answer you wanted? Do you do what you want to do anyways? Or do you rest? Psalms 46.10, be still and know that I am God. We say those prayers, we ask God those things, and we wait. See, we get anxious, don't we? God, I would like, oh, you're not moving. Okay, I'm gonna go over here and do this. God, would you meet this point of need? Oh, you're not meeting that. Okay, well, I'm gonna do this. Like we take things back in our own hands instead of being still, knowing that he is God and he's gonna answer you and provide for you. Be still and know that he is God and know and understand and remember that he wants the very best for you. He really does. He wants the best for you. So then we have to remember to say, God, let my heart desire match your heart desire that I may do your will. we move forward in our passage, the big guns come out. The opening of the sixth seal brings cosmic disruption. Uh, Verses 12 through 17, I looked when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake. The sun became black, a sackcloth made of hair. The whole moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken with a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. The kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders, the rich and the strong, every slave and free man hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains and they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who is able to stand? So that great earthquake, the sun became black, the moon became like blood, the stars fell to the earth. So positive and encouraging this morning, isn't it? Can you imagine that? How terrifying that'd be. In the Bible, celestial disturbances are often connected with the coming of the Messiah. We see it in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Zephaniah. Even Jesus himself had described such things. In Zephaniah 1, 14 through 16, it says, Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord 
In the warrior, it cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day. A day of trouble and distress. A day of destruction and desolation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. Or in Joel 2, 10 through 11, the sun and the moon grow dark and the stars diminish their brightness for the day of the Lord is great and terrible. Who can endure it? Those who look at this book as historical must heavily spiritualize it. Adam Clark is one example. He said of the great earthquake, um, the a most stupendous change in the civil and religious constitution of the world. It refers to Constantine the Great and the change that was made by his conversion to Christianity might be very properly represented under the emblem of an earthquake. The reality is, as we look at this passage, the great earthquake, guess what? It's probably a great earthquake. <laughs> It most likely was. It was a devastating and great earthquake involving literally the shifting of mountains and islands, most likely the volcanic activity, right? We have two volcanoes going right now in Hawaii at the same time. Everybody wants to fly out there and see it. My perspective is fly away from it. That's just me. Volcanic activity spewing ash and vapors in the sky. Can you imagine what's happening in Hawaii, happening around the world? All that ash, those vapors, the sun, the moon, the stars, everything is blackened out. John didn't use technically precise scientific language here. He was simply describing what it is that he saw. How would you have described something like that that, that is on such a great scale that you have never seen before? In this, all the people are equally brought low by God's wrath. Everybody is then on a level playing field, aren't they? Judgment is all more profound because it's the wrath of the Lamb, a wrath of love, sacrificial love that died on the cross to remove and wash away our sin, bringing us salvation and eternity in heaven. If we'll only surrender all to him. Now the other side of that wrath, the evil, will feel the full force of judgment and doom. Eternity in hell. This really is one of those heaven or hell, turn or burn scenarios. I would say, though, don't use that as your tagline if you're sharing your faith. I used to have the t-shirt with Yosemite Sam. Heaven or hell, turn or burn. Very convincing. How many people did I lead to the Lord with that shirt? Just saying. Those who still did not believe, those who would not believe, wanted to be hidden from the face of him who sits on the throne. You see, they recognize at this point where the judgment is coming from, yet they still choose to reject him. And they hid not only of the terror of the judgments, but they hid from the face of the one who sits on the throne. Sweet points out what sinners dread the most is not death, but the revealed presence of God. You think about Moses, who was a godly man, who was shaken to the core with a burning bush. The presence of God. So six seals opened. You would think naturally that we would move to that seventh seal, but he pauses. He pauses here. We'll get to that in, in a couple weeks. So how do the seals fit in God's prophetic plan? 
There are many different opinions. It seems the best to say that the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls that will be described later are not strict, strictly sequential events. It could be said that chrono chronologically, the trumpets do not follow the seals and the bowls do not follow the trumpets in strict order. But Bollinger says it this way, the first six seals are a summary of the judgments distributed over the whole book, a brief summary of what will occur in the day of the Lord up to the time of his actual apocalypse or the unveiling that we're going to read about in chapter 19. That span begins with the revelation of the Antichrist, the first seal, and concludes with the revealing of the face of him who sits on the throne, that seventh seal. And do these seals represent conditions immediately before the end or more general conditions prevailing over a, a more extended period up to the time of the return of Jesus? Well, there's a sense in which we can say that they are, represent both. You see, dictators and war and famine and death and persecution have been familiar throughout all of history, but not to the magnitude or the severity of which they will be present in the great tribulation. Wolverd reminds us the wars and famines predicted in the second and third seals are not unfamiliar events in the history of the world, but never before since the time of Noah has a judgment so devastating been consummated as to destroy one-fourth of the earth's population at one stroke. Had an awesome conversation with someone last week after service, somebody that was pushing back to them about the judgment and destruction of the book of Revelation, claiming that God would never destroy the earth again, right, with the rainbow, which is incorrect. Biblically speaking, the rainbow is a sign of the covenant between God and the whole earth, that he would never destroy the whole earth again with a flood. So there is no tie-in with what happens in the book of Revelation. The rainbow, as we see the rainbow, it's actually a blessing. It's literally correlated to rainfall. Rainfall, which is a blessing and a refreshing to this creation. Make sure you stay focused on what God's word says. Don't be distracted and don't let people take things out of context. If they come up with those things they talk about, take them right to scripture. If you don't know the answer, that's okay. Find it, tell them you'll get back to them. Take him to scripture and then move forward with what it is God is showing you to share with them through the book of Revelation. As far as the seals are concerned, there'll be an intense amplification of bad conditions often experienced throughout history. God will give mankind over to his fallen nature and more, literally turning them over to their wicked and depraved minds. That is how deep that deception is and it's even started now. Excuse me. It's not the case with some of the trumpet and bowl judgments in later chapters. They're completely unique manifestations of God's judgment. Each one of the judgments has a purpose. The sixth seal concludes with a valid question. Who is able to stand? Only the believer can stand before this great judgment. The one who is justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 1 and 2, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. You see, peace with God is the fruit of oneness with him. Before we trust Christ as Savior, we are his enemy. We're hostile towards him because of the sin that's in our lives. 
Yet on the cross, Jesus justified us. It means that he declared us not guilty of our sins. Remember, justified just as if I'd never sinned. We're justified because what Jesus did. He clothes us in righteousness. He liberates us to have a deep, intimate relationship with him. The enmity that we had with God is abolished and we can have peace and unity with the Lord. We move from darkness to light, from enemies to beloved children, from death to life. There is a true transformation, a true change that happens when we surrender to the Lord. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which is also received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. You see, Paul makes it clear to the Corinthians that the gospel, the good news that he had preached to them on his previous visit, which they received, on which they had taken their stand. In other words, he was repeating to them the same thing he had told them before. As we look at this book of Revelation, as we see the, 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 the judgments and everything that happens there, yeah, it's a heavy message, but we have hope in Christ, right? That's where our hope is. That's what we have, so we don't have to worry about all those things. We must stay focused on the gospel message, not get caught up in the rest of the mess. The gospel they received had kept them standing thus far and would continue to do so. As you have accepted Christ, he will help you to stand and having done all, to still stand. I was reminded a few months ago by one of our elders, God gives you enough manna for the day. God gives you enough to make it through the day. We're always the ones that want to have a little backpack on and say, well, can I just get some extra here for tomorrow? God will give you what you need for the day. He'll make sure that you accomplish all that he wants you to accomplish. That we rest in. Paul also affirms that the same gospel that justifies sinners, giving them eternal life, also sanctifies them as saints. Being saved here refers to present tense salvation for deliverance from the power of sin. When we are saved, we are delivered from the power of sin. We don't have to give in to it anymore. We're the ones that make that choice to do it or not, right? He's given us the ability to not. But we must continually abide in him. That is that we must hold fast in the knowledge and application of God's word on a daily basis. 1 Peter 5, 12 says, Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Stand firm. That's the exhortation to all of us this morning. Stand firm. Don't be fearful. Don't look to the left or to the right. Stay focused on him. Stand firm. God's ultimate goal for all believers is to become more Christ-like. That happens only when, through faith, we obey his commands and implement his principles. And soon our relationship with him begins to deepen in ways that we never thought possible. If you're feeling separated from God right now in your relationship with him, where did you go? Because he's right there. If we spend time in relationship with him, that relationship gets deeper and we feel his presence with us continually. So if you don't feel that right now, it's time to come back around full circle and say, okay, God, please restore me. Draw me back to your presence.
As we study this amazing book, The Revelation of Jesus Christ, we simply obey God and leave all the consequences to him. You and I don't bring justice and judgment. God does. All the good, the bad, the ugly, God's in control. We're not. Man's not in control. They think they are. The things that they're doing, remember God will use the righteous and the unrighteous to exact his will. The things that they're doing now, they think they're making the world better. They're positioning it so God's word will be fulfilled. We're called as Christians to occupy until the Lord's return. To live the Christian life is to allow Jesus to live his life in and through us on a daily basis. Because we're to be active in our faith. It's not something we passively sit through on a Sunday morning. Active on a daily basis. So spend the time do the work. Our intimacy with God, his highest priority for our lives, determines the impact of our lives in his creation. It determines the impact in our own families. And one of my family members reached out this week is really struggling. I was able to share scripture, share prayer, minister to them, but is it up to me to seal the deal for them? Except the Holy Spirit, all we can do is be obedient as God gives us opportunity. Amen? Amen? As a believer, we can stand in the face of this great wrath of God because Jesus bore the wrath that every believer deserved. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and praise you for this day and for an opportunity to be in your word. God, this message this morning is, is heavy. But we thank you for it. We thank you for the grace and mercy that you've extended to us, that we have the ability to have that relationship with you. We thank you that you desire us to read and understand what your word says. And that by faith we learn and we grow into everything that you have for us. That you desire that we know you. So Lord, I'm asking that you would meet us at that point of need individually and that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit this morning. Strengthen our desire to know you. Strengthen our desire to worship you with everything that we have, with every ounce of our being. Again, Lord, we ask that you let us not become disheartened by what's happening in the world around us. That we look forward to to the rapture of the church, to, to your return. Let us gain strength. Let us keep proper perspective. Help us to be active and engaged in our faith. Help us to share the hope that we have with everyone that you direct us to. And Father, this morning as we close in communion and worship, God, may our heartfelt praise be a sweet aroma to you. And then in that, you would even strengthen our resolve even more and our faith in you. Or may our faith be seen. And may you be glorified in all that we do. I would ask you this morning with every head bowed and every eye still closed that as we close with communion and worship, I would ask you, are you confident that you're going to spend eternity in heaven? Because if you're not, you can be. 
that, that earlier statement of, of heaven or hell, turn or burn, it, it's actually a, a reality. It's not just a, a t-shirt slogan. We are all sinners saved by grace. We have a choice either to surrender our lives to the Lordship of Christ or to walk away from it. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. You can do that this morning. You can be sure that heaven is your destination by simply asking God for forgiveness and confessing that Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. It's through that that we can repent of compromise and sin that's been directing and dictating our lives. Simply repenting and believing. So if that's you this morning, I'm going to ask you to have a conversation with God, your heart to his heart. You can repeat the words I do or you can just talk to him on your own. Pray something like this, dear God, please help me. I can't live like this any longer. I confess that Jesus is Lord and I believe that you raised him from the dead and because of that I can repent. Forgive me for my sins. I turn from them. As I'm heading a new direction I ask that you would direct every step that you would help me to serve you and honor you that you would help me to share the hope that I have now with anybody that you bring across my path. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer in this room, I'd love to chat with you and pray with you. If you prayed it online, just shoot me an email, scott at foothillscalvary.org, and I'll get back to you as well. has been Alive and Powerful with Pastor Scott Morrison. We hope you were blessed by today's message. Alive and Powerful is the radio ministry of Foothills Calvary, a fresh and growing fellowship in Lakewood, Colorado. We invite you to come and join us as we study the Word together, Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m. We meet at 12344 West Alameda Parkway in Lakewood, just a few blocks west of Union and Alameda. For more information about Foothills Calvary, please visit our website at foothillscalvary.org. That's foothillscalvary.org.